Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here, 12 noon, rain or shine, uh, every Saturday, and on Zoom if necessary, uh, given the covid times that we're in. And uh, we have quite a full program for you today. We're going to read our press release 877, which will take us over to America. Uh, and uh, I think that you'll find that very interesting. And then we're going to give you some nice stories. We're going to tell you some stories about teachers who go where private schools just don't go. They go to the places where where the children are, but there are very, very few services, in other words, remote Australia or Indigenous Australia. And uh, then we are going to uh, have a very interesting time looking at the private schools and their funding. They are never satisfied. They are doing so much better than the uh, public schools these days, but they want more and more because their business plans are in disarray. And perhaps their business plans were pretty bad business plans to begin with. They're not really entrepreneurs. They are parasites. They are parasites on the public purse. That's our view. And that is why we are very much against the public funding of private religious schools. But let's get on with it. Press release 877. In America, as in Australia, the school choice movement of the private religious sector has deep conservative roots. And the heading of this particular press release is school choice and segregation. But in both fragile democracies, the dark side of the religious and private sector with its demands for taxpayers' money for school choice has been exposed. In recent times, We've been confronted with the sex abuse scandals and the violent siege of the capital in Washington by white supremacists. Australia tends to repeat the mistakes of America after they have become proven failures. But in both countries, the ideological underpinning of the private education choice ideology has its roots in segregation along the lines of class, creed, and in both Australia and, and America, colour, as we have found out from the Back Lives Matter movement. But now I'll pass you over to Maddie, who's going to um, tell you what is going on in America. Thank you, Grandma. Uh, Avi Wolfman Arendt writes at the Philadelphia PBS website, why about the uncomfortable dilemma of the school's choice movement. At least some of the choice champions have not come to grips with the fact that their movement was funded by Trump supporters. Perhaps the reckoning might have caused them to wonder if they were being used. It's easy to forget, or perhaps never realise, that the school choice movement was created by Southern segregationists borrowing the rhetoric of libertarian economist Milton Friedman. It is worth pondering why and how 
the Democratic Party abandoned its long-standing belief in equitable, well-resourced public schools as a common good. He begins. When Philadelphia area mega-donors Jeff and Janine Yass made headlines recently for their contributions to Republican politicians, some of whom tried to overturn the presidential election, it stirred up a familiar debate in local education circles. The Yass family has a long history of donating to the Republican politicians and conservative causes. They also are among the largest donors to Pennsylvania's school choice movement. Therein lies a dilemma that for some Democrats who support school choice has caused increasing bouts of self-reflection. On the ground, many charter school employees and school choice advocates are left of centre motivated by a desire to shake up an educational system that they see as not acting urgently enough to help low-income students of colour. But the movement's growth and success has long relied on the political and financial capital of conservatives who see school choice as a way to inject free market thinking into the educational bureaucracy. None of this is new. What's new is the reckoning forced by the Trump era culminating in a violent insurrection that was fomented by Republican lawmakers carried out with symbols of the Confederacy, who on other days could be a charter advocate's best ally. For a period of time, this coalition was able to exist without some of the tensions we're talking about threatening to rip it apart, said Mike Wang, a veteran of the Philadelphia education scene who once headed a leading school choice advocacy group that lobbied in Harrisburg. Will this unusual alliance survive? Can it find new political strengths under an administration promising reconciliation and unity? Or will it disintegrate in an era of increasing political polarity? Well, thank you very much, uh, Maddie, for that. That is what they are talking about in America. The school choice movement uh, is related to the Southerners who wanted to segregate the black children from the white children back in the 60s and 70s, and who fought against um, them being in school together with the busing question. But at what point do well-meaning liberals understand that we can only come together in a stable democracy in public schools established for the common good? There is a fundamental contradiction between segregating children on whatever basis, class, creed, or colour, and the free market, and equity. You just can't have equity with free market and segregating children. It's just not possible. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is to look around you. Segregation in the free market produces winners and losers, not equity. And there are people in America who understand that, and we here on 3 on 3CR understand it very well. Now, you'll find this um, press release on our website at www.adogs.info. But we'll have a break now for a little bit of nice music.
Well, here we are on the Dogs Program once again. We're right back in Australia and we're here uh, with three young students. They're not secondary students, they're tertiary students. And they're going to tell us the stories of three teachers in various places around Australia. And first of all, we've got Ollie, Oliver, sorry, Oliver. Who's going to read the story of Michelle Eves, who goes the extra mile. Thank you, Jane. Michelle Eves' working day begins at 8am in the remote Utopia homelands in the centre of the Northern Territory. Her first duty is to sort food supplies for the day ahead, then she drives a bus 30 kilometres to her classroom. She provides basic hygiene support, including face washing, trachoma, a bacterial infection that affects the eyes, is a serious issue in this region, and teeth brushing before schoolwork begins around 9.15am. Ez teaches transition to year 5 students at the Soapy Ball Homeland Learning Centre, HLC, one of four HLCs in the Alpara School's large geographical area. Between 16 and 20 students meet her at the school and up to another four students from the community 20 kilometres away are dropped off by a second bus. HLC teachers are often required to collect students from multiple communities on their way to school. There are some incredibly challenging things and some very rewarding things about teaching out here, she says. Education is a culturally different thing for people in these communities, and we are mindful of the different values of a Western education system. Culture and family come first, and school comes after anything that is going on in the community, such as a funeral, a family occasion, or a sporting event. We understand and respect that and find ways to work with the community. For Ez, who took on a six-month contract at Alpara at the start of 2016, it has been the opportunity to positively affect the lives of her students and the support of her fellow teachers that have made her stay for almost five years. One of the biggest highlights for me is being able to take a child who has no background in literacy and teach them to read. It happens incrementally and slower than in most classrooms because of all the other challenges that surround us, she says. Ayers trained at James Cook University in Townsville and was working in an out-of-school hours program before a friend encouraged her to take on the contract. I came out here as a general primary graduate, but I have developed a real passion for areas such as early childhood literacy, phonics, and targeting reading difficulties, she says. It is extremely rewarding to find a program that works and to see that it can work multiple times over multiple schools. I have really felt welcomed by the communities out here and I have formed good relationships with the local people and other teaching staff, she says. Ez has also taken on a role as a Barclay Region Counselor for the AEU's NT branch. It is quite unusual to be living around 12 other teachers in a remote place and we have formed strong friendships. We are only 250 kilometres from Alice Springs, but that is close enough to go into a town semi-regularly on a weekend. Teaching days are Monday to Thursday to help manage the travelling, long days, and allow time for meetings, non-contact hours, and school maintenance. Fridays are allocated to administrative tasks. Over to you, Jean. Well, that's the way uh, some people have to live in order to make sure that all of the children in Australia, whatever their class, creed or colour, get an education. The schoolmaster is still abroad and the schoolmaster and mistress 
uh, in the public system because you don't find the private systems out there. There's no money in it. Well, we have somebody else today too, but we'll have a little bit of a break before we go to Solo. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Well, here we are on the DOGS program and uh, some of our program today is dedicated to the teachers that make sure that the children in remote areas get educated or unusual areas where nobody else goes because that's where the public system goes and that's what the public system is for. So I'm going to pass you over to Sorrel, who's with us today. And Sorrel, uh, who's a pretty smart lady, (laughs) is going to tell us about um, Brad. Brad Brad Hannay. Well, thank you, Jean. Um, Brad Hannay says that he and his fellow teachers at Kurulana Tapa Youth Justice Centre in the northern suburbs of Adelaide are never certain what challenges the next day will bring. We don't usually find out who is in our class and what learning issues they might have until 8.20 a.m., he says. We could have any number of new students come in overnight, and then the next week we could get a whole new group of students. This does make it difficult to plan. Hannay is a former home economics teacher who saw the opportunity to make a difference when he joined the school as a math teacher seven years ago. The Goldsboro Road campus has a maximum capacity of 48 students, but there is also a flexi-centre campus with around 40 attendees. Students are aged between 10 and 18. Boys are segregated into age brackets of 10 to 14 and 15 to 18. But girls, due to their lower numbers, are taught across all ages. Hannay teaches a class of six girls with the support of two youth workers who are effectively wardens. The day-to-day challenges are many, from teaching a year five student to tell the time to helping a year 11 student with subject research because she is prohibited from using the internet. But he says the biggest reward is seeing the kids achieve at things they would normally not be doing because they wouldn't even be at school. 90% of our students have some sort of learning disability It might be a learning difficulty that has stopped them going to school, such as undiagnosed autism or a mental health issue that has gotten them into trouble, he says. These kids have all basically said, school can't help me, I'm not going. A lot of them have been denied opportunities to learn. Students are assessed on entry to the centre and lessons are tailored to their specific needs. Hannay says that although the end goal is to get them out of detention, the ones who gain the most from the educational opportunities are the long-term kids. If they are only here for a short time, a month or two, they might learn to tell the time, which they couldn't do before they arrived, and that's a win. But when some of the long-term kids achieve the completion of a research project or pass year 11, which they never would have done on the outside, it's incredible, he says. That is just, sorry, that is not just my point of view. That is how every teacher here feels. We have an amazing staff at the school. I have never worked in an environment where everyone is so supportive of each other. In mainstream schools, teachers have to fit in, but here if a student comes to school and says, I'm not really in a maths mood, do you mind if I do English? I'm not going to say no. If they are learning and being productive, if their education is progressing, then we encourage that, he says. As a mainstream teacher coming into this environment, 
that has been one of the biggest challenges. It's about learning to be flexible so you can give the students what they need. Well, thank you. Well, isn't that a lovely story about the school rejectors, the, the children that the society in many ways has rejected too, and the teachers are making a difference. And also it's in, it's indicative of how flexible the public system is. You know, the, the private school system will have you believe that it's just the public system is just this unchangeable monolith. But uh, as, it, as these stories contest, uh, it's incredibly flexible um, because children learn in different ways. That's correct, yes. Absolutely, and I think it's really important to support the individual and, and make sure you're not trying to fit them into a box that they're not going to fit into, like find what they're good at and help them. Yeah. I'd like to say that Robert Ely's PhD thesis was about these children, those children in what used to be called the reform schools. But we'll have a bit of a break now and then we'll come back and Maddie's got another lovely story for you. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03-9419-8377. Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. At 03-9419-8377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Well, here we are back on the DOGS program uh, with our lovely stories about public school teachers. And I'll now pass you over to Maddie, who's going to tell us about a lady called Melissa Handley and her story. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you, Grandma. These stories have been so inspiring. It's really lovely to hear. And I am going to tell everybody about Melissa Handley who teaches Year 7 to Year 12 at Jacaranda Place School in Queensland. Melissa Handley says Jacaranda Place in Queensland's Brisbane-based Prince Charles Hospital is already attracting interest from national and international educational organisations just six months after opening. Education and teachers have been in hospitals for a long time. That's nothing new. What is different in our setting is the way education and health are working together as one team, she says. The service is the first of its kind in Australia and offers extended treatment and education for students with severe and complex mental health conditions. It has places for 22 secondary school students, 10 of whom live in the area and participate in a day program, and another 12 who are in a residential care. Students may have had a range of challenging and unhealthy behaviours that have negatively affected their schooling, Hanley says. The teaching program aims to help them re-engage in school and, where possible, reconnect with education pathways. We work closely with the health team and have the common goal of seeing the young person re-engage with society on a path that is appropriate for them. So, while the health professionals focus on their specialties and we focus on delivering education, the crucial element is the way we work together to provide one integrated service centred on the student, she says. Handley grew up in Cairns and attended the University of Queensland in Brisbane. 
Her first teaching role was in the rural area of Roma, and she later taught at the Gap State High School in Brisbane. Hadley trained as an English and drama teacher, but because of her rural experience, has taught other subject areas. For Handley, the biggest highlight of the teaching program at Jacaranda Place is being able to concentrate intensively on the specific goals of each student. We are able to take the time to look at the long game for so many of these students who were previously disengaged and had not attended school for a long period, she says. We build connections and relationships with each student and work with them to find the best learning pathway to suit their short-term and long-term goals. We then use a highly differentiated approach to teach the curriculum, drawing on techniques and supports that work for each student. It's a unique model. Handley says many secondary students could benefit from the added support and relationship building offered at Jacaranda. Since starting work at Jacaranda Place this year, I can't help but look back over my teaching career and think of various students who I have come in contact with over the years who could have benefited from such a place as this, she says. What a beautiful story. Yes, thank you very much, Maddie. Uh, That is where the public school teachers are where nobody else goes and where the children catch up. And um, hospitals are just one of those places. But we'll have a bit of a break and we come back to a rather nasty story about private school funding, which shows a neglect of public schools. And we'll have another voice for you. We'll have Dale. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people. And length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land. Brutally. We might be oppressed but we understand what freedom is. And we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation Day one, and I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Yes, well, uh, the private school funding, according to even the Productivity Commission, which is not in any way a socialist organisation, I assure you, um, they are prepared to say that private school funding has shown neglect of the public schools. It's unfair. Uh, in the last decade, the figures are quite shocking. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, I've got the article here. Private school funding shows neglect of public students. A new report has shown that federal funding for private schools continues to grow at a faster rate than for public schools. The Productivity Commission review reveals that over the past decade, spending per student in non-government schools increased by 3.3% per year compared with just 1.2% 
1.4% for government schools. Despite the Turnbull government passing needs-based funding legislation in 2017 under Gonski 2.0, with $23.5 billion to schools over a decade, the Morrison government then tipped in a further $4.6 billion for the Catholic and independent sector. That money included a $1.2 billion fund in the guise of a choice and affordability program, which has been labelled by Federal President Angelo Gabrielatis as nothing more than a slush fund for private schools. He said the funding discrepancy amounted to deliberate neglect of public school students and their parents. While public schools remain underfunded at approximately 90% of the schooling resource standard, which is, you know, not an aspirational target, that's a bare minimum target, the, the minimum agreed funding levels considered necessary to give all children the opportunity to, re to reach their full potential, Governments continue to deliberately overfund private schools, Mr Gabrielatis said. Since 2013, with the election of the Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison governments, private school funding has increased at twice the rate of public schools, 10.8% versus 21.7%. This is deliberate government neglect of the public system. The report revealed that between 2017 and 2018 and 2018-2019, the federal government spent $116 more per student per year for those in the public system, but $336 more for those in the non-government system. Thank you, Dale. Uh, but the private schools, even though they're swimming in all this wonderful cash, uh, they still have problems, of course, or they always seem to have problems because it seems to be a, a bottomless pit once you start giving money to private schools. Uh, but we'll have a bit of a break, and Oliver is going to tell you about how uh, even even with the slush fund, they're not happy. They want more, they want more, and they want more. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mawbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Well, you're listening to the Defence of Government Schools here on 3CR. I don't think you'll find a lot of this information anywhere else, although what Ollie's going to read to you did come out in The Age uh, last Thursday. 
and the private schools, even though they are swimming in the largesse from particularly the Commonwealth Government, uh, want more. Let's hear about it. Thank you, Jean. Catholic and private schools in Victoria will share an extra $286 million from taxpayers as they shift to a new Commonwealth funding model that some non-government schools warn will leave them up to $4 million worse off. Regional and suburban schools, including Bacchus Marsh Grammar, Beacon Hills College, Ivanhoe Grammar, Westbourne and Woodley, say the Morrison government's new non-government school funding formula will force them to jack up fees and drive many students to safe schools. The agreement with the Morrison government, part of the national $1.2 billion Choice and Affordability Fund, is intended to cushion non-government schools from the financial impact of a new funding model under which a minority of schools will have their Commonwealth funding cut. The lion's share of Victoria's funding will go to Catholic schools, which have been granted $188.79 million over 10 years. Independent schools will get $97.35 million. Funding agreements signed with the Morrison government reveal the funds will be distributed to two centralised bodies, the Catholic Education Commission of Victoria and Independent Schools Victoria, rather than to individual schools. Both organisations have committed to help schools whose viability is put at risk by a cut to recurrent funding, but several independent schools are fighting the funding overhaul all the same, warning they will have to cut staff or raise fees to survive. The Choice and Affordability Fund is nothing of the sort. A coalition of regional and suburban independent schools that will be worse off under the new funding model is fighting for a slice of the Choice and Affordability Fund to offset their losses. The Choice and Affordability Fund is nothing of the sort, Bacchus Marsh Grammar Associate Principal Bruce Simon says. It neither enhances choice nor affordability for the schools or for the parents. The large and fast-growing school on Melbourne's western fringe would have been almost $4 million worse off last year under the new funding model, he said. That's because this new funding model takes account of the parents' income. doesn't take account of the grandparents' income or the grandparents' assets that they use to pay the fees of their grandchildren, but it does look at the wealth behind the child. So... um. Well, in that case, perhaps these schools can up the fees if these people want to opt out of the public system. Don't they moan? They are the biggest whingers in Australia. Can you imagine what public schools could do with that money, just with a minor injection of those funds, and yet the independent schools have been given autonomy of expenditure? So... They don't even have to acquit to the government where it goes. That's correct. And there's all the evidence in the world that they have played and replayed and uh, done all the wrong things with the needs policy. The uh, money never went to the disadvantaged uh, in some of their schools. Uh, But, of course, the real disadvantage are in the public system. But, yes, sorry to interrupt. (laughs) Uh, Ollie, back to you. No, please do. These schools face a potential choice between cutting programs and staffing levels or raising fees to cover the shortfall it would incur, Mr Simon said. Once you start raising fees, then you are taking out, ironically, the bottom 10% of your families who literally will not be able to afford that. Tony Schumach, principal of Beacon Hills College, a large independent school in Melbourne's outer southeast, said the new funding formula would force it to raise fees to maintain its current programs. 
the college charges $11,960 a year in 10 years. We're not a school that has this great surplus, so if we lose money from government to deliver exactly the same education to children, we've got to then find money from parents, he said. The Choice and Affordability Fund will provide Catholic and non-government schools $1.2 billion between 2020 and 2029 to help them transition to a new school funding formula called the Direct Measure of Income. Under this new measure, the median taxable incomes of a school's parents sets Commonwealth funding levels rather than the income and educational status of the school suburb. Its passage through Parliament last year followed heavy lobbying by Catholic schools which argued they were disadvantaged by the suburb-based model. All but a handful of Catholic schools will receive more funding under the new measure. The Catholic Education Commission of Victoria said in its agreement with the Morrison government that it will direct $123 million, the bulk of its grant, towards its most disadvantaged primary schools. Oliver, is what I'm hearing that the Catholic sector, the bishops and the Catholic education officers, got what they wanted, but the others, the non-Catholic sector, are not necessarily happy. I think they've that's it. Got, yes, they've been outmaneuvered out again. But that's not new, is it? And yet the Catholic Education Department still cries poor, still says they are at a disadvantage. It's mind-boggling. It will direct $55 million to secondary schools that will lose funding under the new system and spend $10.17 million on specialist schools. Meanwhile, Independent Schools Victoria has committed to spend its funds on initiatives such as a digital tool to help principals and independent schools determine what really matters to families when enrolling out of school, and to help parents choose the right school for their child. It has also committed to help schools determine if they are at risk of closure due to loss of funding or enrolments. Independent Schools Victoria Chief Executive Michelle Green said the organisation would use funding to help schools affected by the new funding model and potential long-term impacts of COVID-19. For all schools, but particularly those facing long-term reduction in government funding, we will be providing support to enable them to have a clear picture of their circumstances and develop sustainable operating processes, Ms Green said. A spokesperson for the Federal Education Department said agreements had been entered into with all Catholic and independent non-government representative bodies outlining their priorities. These bodies had autonomy to administer funding and to support the schools they represented, in line with their agreed priorities, they said. Back to you, Jean. Well, uh, that's a very interesting report from, uh, I think it's Mr Carey of the Age, but um, it just shows you that uh, once you give money to the uh, private religious sector, that it's just open slather. They're never, never satisfied. I remember back in the 1960s, it was only a few million. Now we are looking at billions, billions and billions. But um, we'll have a little bit of a break and then we'll come back because we've got um, some other very interesting material that uh, Dale might want to tell you about. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, 
give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Well, this is your listening to the Dogs Program, the Australian Council for Defence and Government Schools, and we've had a pretty big panel here today. Uh, you've got lots of different voices, not just mine. Uh, and as well as that, we have a very, very clever producer called Dale, as you probably know, and she has been doing some research, some research into what we can learn from the Finnish system. And I'll let her introduce to you her findings. Well, these aren't exactly my findings. Um, uh, the Education Review has released a podcast where uh, Wade Zaglis is talking to Michael Lawrence, who's a music and English teacher and author of Testing 321, What Australian Education Can Learn from Finland. And uh, that questions many of the practices and beliefs underscoring the Australian education system. Uh, the podcast uh, has Lawrence talking about his collaboration with uh, Tempera University of Applied Sciences in Finland and the planned uh, rollout of professional development sessions in Australia called 21st Century Education Trends, a Finnish Perspective. Uh, the uh, Sessions will give Australian teachers a taste of how Finland uh, became one of the most successful education systems in the world. So now we'll go over to the education review and Wade Zaglis talking to Michael Lawrence. Hi, I'm Wade Zaglis, the education editor for Education Review. The last time I interviewed Michael Lawrence, the experienced music and English teacher had just published his book, Testing 321. What Australian Education Can Learn from Finland, which was well received and questioned many of the practices and beliefs underscoring the Australian education system. Today, Michael is joining me again to talk about another exciting new endeavour. Michael, you've recently been collaborating with the University of Tampere in Finland on an exciting new project. In broad strokes, what can you tell me about it? Well, yeah, that's exactly right, Wade. I've been um, working closely with uh, the University of uh, Tampere. In fact, it's the Tampere University of Applied Sciences, to give it its full name. And uh, they basically train one of the main teacher training uh, institutions in Finland. And um, they were basically very keen to, to get something going. They've got an international um, wing to their university and... They uh, work on projects with more than 55 different countries running classes and so on in teacher training in all those different countries. And they were very keen to get something happening in Australia. So I've been able to uh, arrange a professional development day um, with them where they're going to be providing content on topics such as uh, the Finnish education system in a nutshell. I'm reading from a list of them here. Secrets of Finland success, uh, equal and high-quality learning opportunities for all, a forward-looking approach to learning, out of the classroom and into the world. Uh, these are sort of the, uh, the subtitles for some of the, the units that they cover in this day's uh, PD. Lifelong learning, uh, professional, respected and committed teachers, equity and equality, trust throughout the whole system, collaboration, competence-based and flexible uh, personalised study plans, 
student-centered learning, the STEAM education approach, which is very similar to our STEM system, except it includes arts as well, which I think is a brilliant uh, thing. Uh, Phenomenon-based learning, forest education, innovation support in Finland, and um, those are just some of the topics that uh, the, the people in Finland have been putting together. They're putting together using material from their under and postgraduate um, courses, and they're adapting these things for um, this Australian uh, audience that we're going to be taking it to, making turning them into videos, interviewing teachers, interviewing teacher educators, uh, getting footage from classrooms and so on, just basically trying to, to give in a one-day session, an overview of the, the Finnish system and the latest things that they've been working on over there to give Australian teachers and educators an understanding of what has made them the most successful education system in the world. Uh, I think this is an incredible opportunity for Australian schools, whether they want to make changes to their teaching and learning on a, on a big scale or just integrate some of the best practices into their existing um, Methods. It's a great opportunity for schools to look at, uh, to learn from those who teach the best teachers in the world how to be the best teachers in the world. So that's that's the program in a nutshell, uh, Wade. It sounds big but exciting. Um, yeah. yeah. Just the one thing I left out there too. Not only will we have all the all this material put together from Finland, but the the last hour or so of the day. We're going to go direct over to Finland where there'll be a panel of uh, teacher educators from the university able to take questions and have a discussion in real time with the teachers in Australia. So well, I imagine we'll put that up on a, a wall in an auditorium or something so that they can actually see these people and they can look at each other and ask them questions and discuss the things that they've learned earlier on in the day and, and ask specific questions about how that might relate to their own teaching and their own subject areas and so on. Sure, sure. Now, obviously, you are the author of Testing Three, Two, One, and and you're a devotee of the Finnish education system. Really, what draws you to it, Michael? Uh, actually, uh, can I add just to? It's just been made Book of the Month uh, on uh, Maggie Dent's website as well, which is exciting, and she goes a really good review. Yes. Um, oh, look, I've never met an educator that's been to Finland and not been transformed by what they saw. Once you get there and get into the schools, you realise it's like an education nirvana. Um, there's just students who are totally involved in their education and teachers who are totally passionate about what they're doing. And um, everything is just focused on, on excellent education. And it's all done on less money per student than what we spend here. And, of course... Um, now that, that they, Estonia as well, are also topping the international results, um, using similar methods as well, and they're all doing it in a couple of years less, remembering that they don't start school until seven uh, years of age. And one, I remember asking a few months back, asking teachers over there how they were dealing with the remote learning thing. And, you know, the responses were, were along the lines of, oh, look, the, the students are really, are really making sure this doesn't affect their education. But it was just that, that way that they phrased that, that the students, the students owned their education. The students were making the extra effort and taking responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen. Where in Australia, it was very much the, the other way, where teachers were upping their game and a lot of students were just kind of coasting along and taking advantage of the fact that, that they could um, let their education go a little bit if they wanted to because there was no one looking over their shoulder. 
So that's the kind of thing that really attracted me to it, that education nirvana thing. As an educator, uh, that's what you dream of. That's, that's why most people wanted to be teachers. They want to see inspired uh, students and they want to see teachers who are inspired as well and, and both of them thriving. Absolutely. Um, given Australia's uh, obsession with standardised testing and the so-called back-to-basics approach we always hear about, how receptive do you think educators and education groups will be to learning more about the Finnish approach? Do you think there's an appetite out there? Look, what I'm getting talking to to most um, educators in Australia is that whilst they've all applied themselves with with, um, great enthusiasm to the standardisation, the high-impact teaching strategies, these kinds of things that that they've um, been asked to follow, uh, there's been very few stories of uh, success amongst them all. Everybody seems to be, you know, either flatlining or going backwards. No one's saying, oh, look, I did this stuff and we've just gone from, you know, immense improvement. There's no stories like that. They just don't exist. Uh, so I think a lot of these schools are thinking, well, what, what do we do next? And I think the trouble for, for a lot of Australian schools is they don't know what to do next. One of the problems with this whole standardisation of, of whatever of, that schools have been applying is that it actually um, discourages any discussion or um, analysis of the teaching methods and so on that are being used and basically shuts all of that down. So when it actually, we get to a point now where we've been doing it for a decade or so and it's not working, no one really knows what to do next. So I think this program is going to give schools that are in that position a real chance to see what a few alternative things are that they can do uh, and just a few options as to how they can either make some minor tweaks to what they're doing that can that, that alone will bring about improvements for schools or make some pretty major tweaks and actually really make some big changes to their, their school community because it, it will impact the entire community. You know, it's not just the students, it's not just results. It's, uh, parents love this kind of thing because suddenly someone's talking to them about whether their students are passionate and happy and enjoying their education. Students love it for those reasons as well. And, of course, teachers love it too. Uh, so it, it, it really does do a lot more than just improve uh, the grades and marks of the students. You know, I've seen schools that have, that have got these critical thinking uh, programs in, in their curriculum, but, in fact, there's no discussion or critical thinking that's really allowed in what they're actually doing or about what they're actually doing in the school. Uh, and if there's no discussion, no critical thinking about what's going on in the school, there can be no innovation, and this is why there's no improvement. It's, you've, they've kind of painted themselves into a corner where they're obliged to keep doing the same thing over and over again. And, um, you know, that's the opposite thing to what any education system should be. Education should be encouraging new ideas. It should be about new ideas. It should be about innovation and trying new things and so on. So, yeah, I do think that there's a, a, an appetite for something different, something, some tweaks at least that can be made. And this thing, you know, you don't have to um, adapt, become part of the Finnish system. You have to adapt the whole thing to the whole thing 100%. You can take bits and pieces from it and use them. And at, at the bare minimum, it'll make schools and educators aware of what aspects of what they're doing could be causing um, problems 
within their own uh, students and so on, and why they might and they might start to understand why they're not moving forward and rather a flatlining or going backwards. Following on from that question, what is your biggest concern regarding the Australian education system at the moment and I guess into the future? Two decades ago, Australia was one of the leading education nations in the world. The OECD used to hold Australia as one of the best uh, in class in education, but not any longer. Despite frequent school reforms, educational performance has not been improving. Indeed, it has been in decline uh, compared to many, many other countries. And, um, yeah, all those statistics reveal a system-wide prevalence of inequity that's boosted by education resource gaps between Australian schools that are among the largest in the world. There is no other uh, country in the world, for instance, that, that gives money to non-government schools the way that Australia does. Often the inspiration for these education reforms in Australia have been the sorts of things that we've seen from the US and Britain. But the evidence base to support many of these uh, is just non-existent or very, very weak. For instance, research shows that market-based models of school choice, test-based based accountability, privatisation of public education have been the wrong strategies for world-class education and elsewhere. Yet market models have been the cornerstone of Australian school policy since the early 2000s and still are. Just um, widening the gap, really. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. You know, and there was... Uh, Parsi Solberg wrote recently about um, the way that Australia had got through this pandemic by basically following the research and the science and so on. Uh, and, you know, he, he pointed out that if, if we did that with education, we'd be in a vastly different place <laughs> right now. And, you know, I thought it was a, a really a good point to make. Why, you know, we're not tra taking education seriously when we don't pay attention to research and the science and, and these kind of things. We just sort of blindly keep doing something that's clearly not working in the hope that somehow something will happen to change that. Well, finally, Michael, how can interested educators and providers learn about this great new collaboration you're involved in? A couple of, uh, a couple of ways they can find out more about it. Um, they can, there's a website... Um, they can, there's a link to that through my LinkedIn site uh, or if they Google me. There's a Facebook group uh, called What Australian Education Can Learn From Finland and uh, they can also email um, in any inquiries to FinEdAustralia, that's FinEd with a double N, at gmail.com. That's FinEdAustralia at gmail.com. So plenty of places there where they can get more information um, about what we're doing and I'm updating that website. Uh, almost daily at the moment as I get more and more material from Finland um, as we, I get more, you know, specific things about what we're actually going to have in the program because they are literally putting things together as I speak. I bet. Well, Michael Lawrence, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for speaking to Education Review. Thank you very much, Wade. No, my pleasure. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. 
You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, that's it for today. And I'd personally like to thank Dale, our producer, and Sol and Maddie and Oliver, who have uh, contributed so much to this afternoon's uh, DOGS program. And if you want to find out more about us, you can go to the website at www.adogs.info or if you want to hear previous programs, you can go to the 3CR website and listen to the podcasts. But from us at the DOGS, it's bye for now.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.